Good morning. Go ahead and come inside. Take your seats. Good morning, everyone. If you are in junior high, please stay with your family right now. Pastor Caleb has an announcement this morning. And then once he finishes his announcements, if you're in junior high, you can follow him out for junior high service. All right, settle down. Great job. All right. Good job. Oh, thank you for listening. All right, my name is Amy. If we haven't met, I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church. Uh, We just want to welcome you. We want to say happy Father's Day to you. Uh, We recognize that Father's Day is filled with many, many feelings. And uh, we want to recognize, though, that, you know, being a dad is tough. And we thank you for those that have uh, stepped up to the call of being a dad. And Sarah Bible would like to thank you today with a bag of beef jerky. And so thank you so much. Be appreciated. So if you not have your jerky, you can grab that on the way out. If you are meatless meat-free. We also have dried mango, all right? That's right. I got you, whoever you are. All right, so that's for you. If you are uh, new, we have information about the church in front of you in that pocket. We also have a gift for you, and so again, uh, don't, don't hesitate to let us know who you are. We want to give you that gift and get you plugged in here at Sierra Bible Church. Uh, with that, we have a couple things going on the next couple weeks. This coming Thursday, we do have a, a free seminar Um, This seminar is actually to get information about how to get your trust or your will established. Um, If you are a family that's already done this, great. If you're a family that's been thinking about doing this, this is an opportunity for you to get information about that. Alpha Omega runs this seminar. It's a free seminar, and then they offer their services uh, afterwards to get your trust uh, situated and legal. Um, if you've looked into this before for your family, you probably know that it's a pretty expensive endeavor. Um, and so this ministry offers it at a more affordable price. So again, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's probably not relevant to you. But if you do, and you've been thinking about this, we want you here uh, Thursday evening. It's actually not going to be in this building. It's going to be in Ray Hall. All right. So make note. And there's information about that uh, out front as well. And then if you haven't heard, we have Vacation Bible School in July. It's coming up. And so we want you to sign up. If you are in this age group, 3 to 12, uh, you can have your child sign up. We also can have you sign up as a volunteer. All of that's done through our app. It's also done through our website. As of last week, we had about 50-plus kids already signed up, and we have a great volunteer base. But we are thinking that number is probably going to double as it gets closer to those dates. And so if you want to spend your week pouring into kids, taking care of them, making sure they're safe, that you need to be here for that. All right, so sign up. Let us know if you have any questions about VBS. Um, And with that, I have Pastor Caleb coming up. He's going to talk a little bit about our graduates this year. I feel like y'all are left with no response but to clap. So anyways. Um, (laughs) Sierra Bible Church wants to give a gift to our graduates and, um, you know, leave you guys with a, um, the fragrance of Christ, a taste of just, hey, this, is, this place wants to give to you and love you. Um, Jacob, Ivans, would you come on up? Rachel, please come on up. Uh, Hannah Hammond, are you here? Nope. Uh, Autumn, I saw you. Come on up, please. Um, if you are a high school graduate and I haven't seen you or named you, please come forward. Although, they are resistant. <laughs> Um, here we go. Autumn. 
Rachel. Jacob, a lot of our graduates are in Hawaii or um, Spain or some other high school graduation trip. But um, we've given you guys a, a devotional by Timothy Keller, and it's uh, a daily devotional, and it's through the Proverbs, wisdom for this next stage of life every day. And then a uh, check for $200, and maybe you guys can buy a book um, from college. So good luck with that, or get yourself some AirPods. Um, uh, a last reminder, um, Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. And of, oftentimes when I talk to uh, younger Christians, it's like, hey, you know, how do I hear God's voice? You have to tune your ear by reading the Word of God. He speaks to you in many ways, but if you're not in the Word, you won't hear it. You know, He speaks to you from other people. He speaks to you, you know, just in the quietness of your own heart, but you tune your ear to hear His voice through the Word of God, the Word made flesh. So, Father, thank you so much for these graduates. I pray that you would give them wisdom, Lord, that you would bless them, Lord, that you draw them close in relationship to you. Lord, I pray for their protection. Lord, I pray that you would bless them with godly friendships in their new um, stage of life, Lord, people that will exhort and encourage, Lord, that will um, just be there and empathize, Lord. I pray that you would bless them with godly friendship, like David and Jonathan, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Um, Come back to us. Um, Junior high, you are dismissed. Meet me on the deck. Pastor Jesse. Okay. Good morning. Uh, As Caleb mentioned, my name is Jesse. I'm part of the team here. And uh, for the most part, I get the opportunity to teach out of this beautiful, uh, holy, sacred book. And, And it is a difficult thing to do week in and week out. And Uh, I get an opportunity to share some of that difficulty with you this morning. Uh, But if you don't have your Bible this morning, these uh, gentlemen here would love to hand you one so you can see what I'm saying and and hopefully see that I'm pulling my thoughts and ideas from Scripture that I'm not inventing them. A few uh, weeks back, um, I gave a message out of Ephesians uh, in the first segment in chapter 1 where Paul prays. And one of the things I said uh, in that particular message, if you weren't here, um, I'll tell you. If you don't remember, I'll remind you, is that words are important. And James chapter 3 tells us that the tongue is an unruly evil that cannot be quenched or tamed. Uh, And last week, um, I, at the end of the second service, for some reason, (laughs) I, I couldn't even tell you exactly why, I made a joke about Mavis. Mavis has been part of our church for years, and she had a situation where she's lost her, her tooth. And for some stupid reason, in my immaturity, I made a joke about it to get a laugh. And uh, I want to make sure that, that you know that I am sorry for that. I apologize to Mavis. I followed up with Mavis and let her know. Uh, and, and I have a really good relationship with Mavis. That, that many of you who are new here, you, you may not even be aware of. And so I know that I probably have offended, like I'm sure there are folks who walked out of here going, what a jerk he is. And to a certain degree, there's some truth to that. Um, and, uh, and so I called Mavis and I told her this week, I talked to her after the service last week, made sure we were good. And uh, you know, she assured me we, we were because Mavis loves the Lord, she loves the gospel. And I, so I called her this week and I said, hey, on Sunday, I'm going to talk about you again. 
So I wanted to give her a heads up. And I said, I just need to make an apology. And she's like, you know, you don't even need to worry about it. And I said, listen, it's not an issue of just even you. It's also an issue of those who, you know, don't know. Uh, and I've been called, we've all been called, uh, to, uh, to honor our older women as mothers. And I failed to do that. And I just want Mavis to know, I, I'm sorry and I apologize. I love you. Um, as I talked to Mavis this week and she said, don't worry about it. She said, you know what, actually, Jess, I know how to fix it. I got a solution. I said, okay, what is it? Take an offering for a gold tooth. I'll be good. <laughs> so, um, there are lessons here that, that are important for me to continue to learn as your pastor. Uh, I hope that you give me grace. Uh, I don't deserve it. I'm not advocating for you to give me that. But uh, I will tell you, because I, I, I have to, <laughs> I'll hang out with Mavis every day. That's the kind of Christian I want to be around. And I know that a lot of her view of the gospel has been tempered by her years of living. And oftentimes you'll hear things of, of those of us who get older that we can get bitter and grumpy. Mavis has not done that because of the gospel. Instead of becoming bitter and grumpy, she's become gracious and beautiful. And I just, I, I can't say enough about her. I can't say enough about her relationship and impact even in my own kids. And so I just want to make sure you know that uh, I'm aware of my stupidity. I am willing to humble myself in my stupidity. This is not easy. And it is only by the grace of God that I have been able to get myself to this place and share this with you. Uh, and as we dive into the text this morning, I'm not surprised, because it's how often God works, that I, I started Ephesians because I knew I needed it. Um, and, and that's kind of how God works sometimes in the word for the pastor. Oftentimes, I remember my pastor in San Diego telling me this. The church gets to go through the growth, the sanctification process with their pastor. Whether they like that process or not, you get to be on that journey with me. Uh, and hopefully, as Paul told Timothy in Timothy, that my progress as a pastor would be evident to all, that my growth would be evident. And I pray that my growth is evident. I, I don't do this for my own self. I, I pray everyone really knows that. I do this for the gospel. And I do this because Christ has impacted me and he's changed me. Uh, this morning, I've titled the message basically the same thing as last week, which is the, the wall that divides and the cross that unifies. I'm going to stay with that title, and I've just titled it part two. But really, uh, really, and you'll see here in a few moments, the title of the message could be, and this is why I say God's providential, because I get to be the sermon illustration uh, this morning. And, and I could have titled this message, I'm the problem. That could be the title of this sermon. Uh, and so as we dive in together, I just would encourage you, if you can, if you're willing to, uh, if you have the heart to do so, and you want to honor the word with me by standing, I want to invite you to stand with me. Uh, as we read from chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, 
Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. <clears throat> remember, there's that word again, remember, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and he is the one who has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Lord, we trust your word will be the thing that changes us, shapes us into your image, guides us on a path of righteousness and peace, and that gives us access to eternal life forevermore. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You can be seated. Again, for the central purpose of trying to understand what's happening in this passage. There's language that I got across a little bit last week, and we'll do a little bit more work this week in it, of, of this dividing wall of hostility. You see, if you think about what this dividing wall is, the dividing wall between, literally, when they speak of this dividing wall, he's speaking of the, the difference between the Hebrew individual and the Gentile individual. In fact, when you look into the text and it uses this language and it says this, when it says, you who are the circumcision, and then it uses the, the word, you who are the uncircumcision, those are racial terms. Those are terms of prejudice. Those are not, that, that is not a term of, that is, that is no different than today to, to be saying, I as a race am this and you as a race are that and we are divided because of these things. Now for the Hebrews, they would say, we're divided because of this. This is why we can't hang out with Gentiles. This is why Gentiles are dogs. Uh, that's literally what they use. Remember Gentiles, Hebrews weren't even allowed to help a woman give birth, a Gentile woman give birth, lest a Hebrew be a part of bringing another Gentile in the world. That was kind of their mentality. And the reason that they had this mentality, again, was because they said, we only worship one God. We worship the only true God. That's Yahweh. That's all there is. There's nobody else. And all of the other gods in, in, in the world at that time, they were, there were sacrifices made to those gods. Sometimes the firstborn was sacrificed to those gods. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of sexual immorality associated with gods, just like in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesus, the, the, god of, was Af the goddess was Aphrodite. There, there's just a lot, of, a lot of following after 
these false gods. And so the Hebrew said, we, we only have one God, the one true God. So, so you need to recognize that. In addition to that, God said to them, right, through the Ten Commandments and through all of the different ordinances, that is laws, that is imperatives, those are the things that, where God says, I want you to do this. The Hebrew said, we do that. We're, we're that. But here's the thing. They, they thought, because we don't lie, we don't steal, we don't you know, cheat, we don't do any of those bad things, right? We don't own Disney+. Plus. We are good Christians, right? Because we're doing these things that makes us God's chosen people. And the, the, the Gentiles, they, they aren't like us. They are sinning all over the place. And so again, they, they, they saw themselves as better than because they were, their behavior, their behavior was far more moralistically superior than any other nation. But here's the catch. If you go back into the Old Testament and you really start to look at the laws and the ordinances, in part, the laws, the commandments, in part, the emphasis of those laws relies heavily on the Hebrews being a blessing to the poor and the lost and the broken and the bruised. I mean, they had laws, like I mentioned it last week in brevity, but the, the law of Jubilee. After so many years, after so many years, the Hebrews had a law that all debt and all land went back to the original owner. Imagine, for those of you who hold a visa card, what that would be like to be forgiven of all of your debt every, I think it's seven years, the year of Jubilee. Every seven years. But it was a law of, you get to start over. We don't want to hold people in debt. We don't want to hold people into slavery. And, and what God was telling the Hebrews is, the law, me taking you out of, uh, of Pharaoh's hand and out of slavery into freedom, and, and these ways I've called you to live are to be a declaration to the rest of the world that God is the God to worship, that God is good and God is compassionate. And instead of it being a mode of compassion, it became for them a dividing wall of pride. They began to think that because they had Abraham as their father and because they had the law and because they were of the Hebrew race of people, that the Gentiles were less than than them. And here he tells us that Christ has tore this law, this wall down. This dividing wall is gone. In the previous passage, we saw the power of God to tear down the wall between us as an individual and Christ. In this passage, again, emphasizing what I said last week, God is drawing us corporately to one another. What, what he's speaking of in this passage is how does a church filled with different people from different culture, cultures and different races and different likings and different motivations and different whatever it may be, how do we come together and have peace? There's the word peace in this passage. He is our peace. The question we have to ask is how does the church really become this unified thing that glorifies God and does not have dividing walls between us and anybody else who's different than us. Here's the first thing. It's been mentioned twice in the passage. It's right there in verse uh, 12, and it's also shortly after that. Uh, that word in, uh, I'm sorry, it's in verse 11, right? Therefore, what does it say? Remember. There's something about remembering. It, jump, it jumps down into verse 12, and he says it again. He says it twice in the passage. He uses the word remember. And what does he tell us to remember? 
This is the first point of how we become a people of peace. You have to remember. Remember what? You have to remember, it says, specifically who you were, what your life was like, what it is like, what it was like to live without Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have to reflect on what your life would be like if you didn't have God. Peter says it like this. I think it's right, he says, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. He says to stir you up by way of reminder. And if you look up that word to remember, it literally means to let it grip you to let the memory of who you once were or who you would be without Christ, to let that memory seize you, to get it to move you, to to have it feel within the memory. It it is something that should well up an emotion in you, to know that you have been saved from a particular plight. It's an intellectual recollection of facts for sure, but it's a recollection of facts that moves the soul. Let me give you some language of what it's like to be in a life without Christ. Language that does exist in scripture here, right? It's here. You see the language, what it is to be without Christ. He says in verse 12, it's to be Christless. That is to to say you have no messianic hope. There is no future that is beautiful for you without Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth. That's to say, without Christ, there are no promises of forgiveness. There are no promises of reconciliation with God. And there are no promises of peace without Jesus. That's what that means. There is no hope. You have no future, basically. And you're in this world, living in a world without God. Ezekiel paints the picture much more radically. Like if I was to give passages, like if you watch a movie and you you start a movie, all of us know that when you start a movie, one of the first things you see in the corner is what is the rating of the movie and why it's rated that way right? PG because of this, PG-13 because of that. This passage in some ways is rated R. I just want to give you a heads up that not everything in scripture is written for us to walk away and go, oh, that's beautiful, makes me feel good. Sometimes we have to be faced with the reality of really what it is to live without the gospel, the plight of humanity and God tells the people of Israel in Ezekiel 16, if you're getting ready to read it with me, God tells the people of Ezekiel what their condition was like without God, and it is a similar condition of what life is like without God for us. So let's read this together if you have it. If not, listen carefully because the words are heavy, they're true, and they will move our hearts. 16 verse 4, as for your birth, he says to the Hebrews, this is their birth, this is their beginning, this is who they are from the get-go. When you think of scripture when it says that that we were conceived in iniquity, that we were born in sin. He says, this is your birth. On the day that you were born, listen to the condition of the Hebrews, the condition of us without God. On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut. You were not washed with water. No one cleansed you. No one rubbed you with salt. No one wrapped you in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into the open field where you were, where you were aboard and on that day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, stop. God is really good at painting pictures. 
And the picture of Christlessness, of Messiahlessness, is a picture of an individual who has been born, has been thrown away by their mother and their father into an empty field of grass and hay, covered in blood, has not been washed, the cord has not even been cut, and the baby is wallowing in his own blood. And, and basically, as we know a child would, begging for compassion and mercy to be held, and it doesn't exist for the child. This is the condition. This is what it means when Ephesians says, you are dead, chapter two, verse one, dead in your trespasses. There's no hope for you. You are in the field. There is no parent to grab you. But God, God in his mercy and his compassion comes across this field and he sees you, it says in Ezekiel 16, verse seven. And I saw you in your blood and I said to you, live. But by the grace of God coming to humanity and saying to our soul, live. We will not have life. Now paint the picture. This is, this is God saying, okay, to Israel, I saw you. You were born in iniquity and sin. You had no hope. You, in fact, when God really came to the Hebrew people, they were enslaved, not only in sin, but to Pharaoh himself. And then he says this. He says he comes to, the, to that child. He came to the Hebrew people. As he comes to us, this is Ephesians chapter one. From the foundation of the world, Christ came. He preached peace to us. And so we have been saved and we are made alive. And then look at verse seven of Ezekiel 16. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. Do you see it? This is God saying, okay, it's important that you understand. It's important that you remember who you were, alienated, hopeless, like a child in the field. Let this move you. Let it move you because it shows you the graciousness of God that he came to that field and he spoke to you and he said at some point, live, be born again. And that's the same message that still extends even today for anyone who is an extension of my voice, who is in the room or who is watching on a podcast or YouTube or whatever it may be. Christ is speaking to you. It is time to rise from the field of death and to live, that you would flourish, he says. Now, if we continue the passage, he then says, I passed by you again. Some time has transpired in the text. Some time has passed. And he said, I saw you again, and you were at the age of love. Come on, parents. You, you, some, some of you know this memory. Some of you have lived it. I haven't yet. I haven't yet, right? I know what it is like, right? When, when our little girl was born, she was almost four weeks early. And when we placed her in the car seat to take her home, the belt buckle was the same size as her torso. She was just the teeniest, most beautiful thing. This is the picture, right? Like, like Christ sees that child, takes that delicate little child home and he feeds it and he nurses it and he swaddles it and he cleans it and then he matures it. And now this is the place we're at in the text. Just like my daughter one day is gonna grow up and she's gonna say, daddy, I found a man. And I'm gonna say, Jolie, go get my gun. No, I'm, I am looking forward to that day and praying that that man will be a man who loves Christ more, far more than he loves my daughter. That's my prayer. And here's this little girl, she's come to age. And he sees her, she's at the age of love. It's time for her to be married. This is still pointing towards the gospel because the church is the bride. The bride's ready for love. 
And so what does God do? He passes by again. He sees that she's ready for love and his gracious work continues. He says, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. He's saying, do you, you know, you remember you were in the field, but now the work of God, I'm going to cover all your shame. That's what nakedness is. I'm going to cover it. No one's going to be able to mock you. No one's going to be able to look at you poorly and say, who are you? Why are you this way? No one's going to be able to do that because God himself is the groom, covers the bride. This is the wedding day for Christ that he's talking about. He says, I passed by, covered your nakedness, and I made a vow to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. This naked, abused baby has been brought near by the blood of the cross that they would be unified with God and God's work continues for you today that he bathes you, he cleanses you. He goes on, he says, I've bathed you. I washed all the blood off of you. All of your sin, all of your guilt is gone. I've anointed you with oil. Your sin doesn't cover you anymore. My oil, my spirit, my goodness covers you. I clothed you also, I embroidered cloth and I shod you with fine leather. Do you see the work of God? He's putting every piece of clothing. This is the little girl getting ready for her wedding day. And the father is in the room alone and he's dressing her with the best clothing that he could provide, that he could give or that he could make. This is our relationship. He says, I've given you this. I've wrapped you in fine linen, covered you with silk. And your renown went forth to all the nations because of your beauty. This is God saying, look, your relationship with me, because I made you pure, because Israel, I pulled you out of Pharaoh. That was their field of death. I pulled you from that. I did those things. I've done that. I've bestowed it upon you. And because I did this, your beauty will be known throughout the world. A beauty that did not come because of your work in the field. A beauty that did not come because you did it. A beauty that came because Christ covered you with his holy robe. But there's a third segment to this. The first segment, the child. The second one, a mature woman moving towards marriage. But then in verse 15, because we're still in the Old Testament, we have another but. And what's that other but? but you played the whore. He goes on, if you actually read the passage, he basically goes on and says that what Israel did is they became the whore. That's language in the Old Testament that, it, that, that it's trying to communicate that when we worship other gods like the Ephesians did and when we run after false gods like we also often do, the Bible likens it to adultery. There's actually a place in the Old Testament that it says when you open yourself up to false gods, he literally says that you have spread your legs, Israel, beneath every terebinth tree. His rebuke to Israel is that heavy. He says, you have hoard yourselves out. You have given your body, your soul, your nature, your very essence, yourself, you have given it away when you ought not to give it away so easily, it ought to be kept for the one who has brought you out of the field, the one who has washed you clean and the one who has paid the price to make you his. 
That's what they did. And if it, it goes on and says, the reason they fell into that whoredom, do you know why if you keep reading? Because they forgot. They stopped remembering who they were. Right? I mean, the, you, you have to see the condition of what sin does to us. Romans alone, just Romans alone, says that sin is like a king in death. Our condition is that we have a king and he's king death. That sin holds dominion over us like a lord. That it enslaves us like a slave master. Like we've actually been sold as a force that produces other sins, as a power that seizes and kills. It also goes on in Romans in chapter seven to, to describe sin as a hostile occupant who dwells within us. Someone who doesn't belong has infiltrated our home. This is what it is like. And, it, and we're being told to let this grip us. How do we let it grip us? We pray, right? You say, how do I remember? That should be the next question. Jess, how do I remember? Number one, pray. Pray, Lord, soften my heart. Make it sensitive to the truth. Show me how blessed I am in contrast of how cursed I used to be. Ponder. Think about and meditate of the realities of your plight without Christ, that guilt would come at you every day, that you would have a meaningless existence apart from what God has for you, that, that, that there's justice against you, that God's hand literally is against you. Ponder those things. And as you move through life, then you see the misery of the world. There's a lot of misery in the world. There is a lot of hurt. There's physical suffering death, cancer, there's emotional suffering, there's depression, moral wickedness. There are all kinds of different retardations in the world in all kinds of different ways. We are broken. And as we move through life and we experience that brokenness, every one of us should be praying and saying to the Lord, there but for the absolute free and unmerited grace of God, there I go. That if it wasn't for God's grace, I would be in the pit. If it wasn't for God's grace, I would be in prison. If it wasn't for God's grace, I would be the addict. And then we also remember by boasting often, as Paul so often says, boast often and boast in nothing other than the cross. We don't brag about anything else. We shouldn't be bragging about how big the church is. We shouldn't be bragging about the different ministries we have. We brag about the gospel, that Christ is for all people, whether they go to this church or they go to another church, whether they live in Truckee or where they live in another nation. God is for all people. He's even for Russian people and he's for Ukrainian people. And what God is saying with us is that, that the cross, it literally says this here. And if you look, it says, but now in verse 13, but now, but now, but now, but now what? Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace. We've been brought near and now there's peace. I absolutely love Pastor Vody Bachman. Some of you probably don't even know who he is, but he's, he grew up in the, the, the ghetto and he's just a, a wonderful preacher. And I was listening to this week, a little bit on this passage. And, and he was saying this, he was saying, you know, one of the things, uh, and I know I might trigger a few people here when I talk about this, but he says, you know, one of the things the church doesn't need to talk about in the church really so much. And this is coming from an African-American. Uh, he said, we really don't need to talk about ra racial reconciliation like we do. 
And of course, I'm speaking my interest because I'm like, yeah, we do. We got, we, there's obviously some reconciling that needs to occur. And he says, listen, if, and, and those of you who are married, you understand this. When you get into a fight with your wife, do you need to speak about still being married? I mean, maybe. But the reality is when I get in an argument with my wife, no matter how bad the argument is, and just so you know, yeah, I have gotten in arguments with my wife. I am a pastor and I have had that moment and I will confess to you, I'm wrong every time. I'm learning it. I'm learning. It's part of my sanctification. Don't tell her I said that. The reality is this, and this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying in this passage, you don't need to create rec- racial reconciliation. Racial, racial reconciliation is already a reality in the gospel. It's already here. It exists. It's not something we work on. It's something that's been accessed. The the door is open to walk into it. And part of the way that we get there is remembering where we've fallen, which leads me into this point, the next point in verse 13, that we are drawn near by the blood. That is what draws us near by the blood. So now we have to ask the question. He says, literally, the blood on the cross draws us near. How does the blood on the cross draw us near? There's a few ways I'll share with us this morning. The first way is this. What the blood on the cross does for us in regards to bringing peace is the blood on the cross reveals to us first and reveals to us first our own sin. Because ultimately scripture tells us, yes, the Romans put the blood there. The Roman soldiers put the blood there. And yes, the Jews put the blood there. But the text also says you put the blood there. Your sin nailed him to the cross. My sin, my sin, my sin would have been sufficient enough by itself to hang Jesus on the cross and to keep him there. Just my sin let alone the world's sin, let alone your sin. And here's basically what I'm trying to say to you about if we're gonna have peace, every single one of us has to acknowledge that we're the problem. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about because if you get kid A and you weren't there to see what happened and you get kid B and you sit kid A and kid B down and you ask them why it is that kid A punched kid B and why kid B punched kid A. It's not in my home, by the way. And you ask them why? Did this happen? Whose fault is it? How do we prevent it from happening again? What you will never find 10 times out of 10 is one of those kids to sit there and say, mom, it's my fault. Has anybody had that moment? If you did, you remember it. You remember it because nobody does that. Because what happens is in that moment, those two little kids, what they'll do is they'll say, well, so-and-so did this. Well, he did that. And next thing you know, all it is is finger pointing. You did this and you did that. And so I'm justified in my actions because of what you did. I'm justified by what I did because of what he did. And we point fingers at each other. And what he's doing in this passage for peace in the church is he's saying, if there's gonna be peace in the church, you cannot point your finger at other Christians and other Christians' prejudices and other Christians' sins and other Christians' shortcomings. You have to. To look at your own. You will not have peace 
We will not have peace if we don't admit we're the biggest problem. I came across a really neat little story about uh, G.K. Chesterton. If you don't know who he is, he well-known Christian author. G.K. Chesterton was asked by the London Times, said, okay, we want you, because he was a well-respected author, well-known, we'd like you in the London Times to write a series of articles on what the problem with the universe is. And we're going to have you and we're going to have several other well-known authors contribute into this series of articles that we're running on what is the problem with the universe today. I mean, that is a very high and lofty thing to try to figure out, right? And I'm sure all of us in here would answer and we'd all have maybe a couple different answers. What's the problem with the universe, right? Some people say it's global warming. Some people say it's politics. What's the problem with the universe? We want to know what G.K. Chesterton's going to say. I want to know what G.K. Chesterton's going to say. So G.K. says, listen, I'm not going to write the articles. But I do have something I want to send you, and I would ask that you would publish it. They agreed, and this is what G.K. Chesterton wrote. Dear editor, the problem with the universe is me. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. What the blood on the cross says is not that you're the problem, I'm the problem. If the church is to have any kind of hope towards unity, everyone has to acknowledge their own prejudices, their own likes, their own dislikes, their own preferences, their own self-righteousness. We all have to do that kind of dirty work. But the blood of the cross doesn't stop there because as much as the blood of the cross tells us that we're a sinner and as much as the cross tells us that we're a big problem and you are, please hear me empathetically, you are a major problem for the gospel. You're a big problem, but the blood on the cross also says you are loved big time. Yeah, you're a big problem, but I love you anyways. That's what the blood of the cross says. The blood of the cross says you're a big problem and the big problems that exist in churches, they still exist today. That's why there's denominations. I mean, I I could tell you all of the reasons churches have divided over the years and almost all of them are dumb. I'm serious. And most of them are, are, are an emphasis of preference that has been elevated over the gospel. An emphasis of preference of worship, an emphasis of preference of, of spiritual gifts, an emphasis of preference over exegetical teaching. All of those things are important. But none of them are more important than the message that God has come to reconcile every single big problem unto himself. And if we don't recognize that we're the issue and we're constantly pointing each other, we'll never have peace. Because what being part of a community is, it is, first of all, when it's done well, it's the best thing on the planet because it's like heaven. But you know why it's so difficult? Because basically what happens is you walk into this room and you're walking into literally a room of mirrors. No different than marriage or parenting if you know where I'm going. Right? You walk into the church and you get flustered because you're looking in the mirror. And what do even sociologists, what have they told us about when we usually don't like people? Why? Because they remind us of us. And that the weaknesses that we see in other people bother us more when they're actually our own weaknesses. And so we walk into this room to be sanctified and to grow together. And you're faced with yourself. 
And because of ego and sin, none of us wants to look in the mirror and go, okay, Lord, do the dirty work. Instead, we look in the mirror, and as a form of psychosis, we say, that's not me. That's you. And you're the problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? When if we could walk in and say, man, Lord, thank you. Because it is an act of love for God to show you the things in you that are not godly. Like I said this week, I got a big mirror in front of me this week. And I got an option. James actually talks about it. James says, there's the kind of man who looks in the mirror and sees that he's got a dirty face and he walks away and he doesn't wash. And then there's the guy who looks in the mirror and sees, ah, I got a dirty face. I got some work to do. And then because my identity hopefully is in the gospel, I'm not crushed by it. Because to be honest, I've made enough mistakes in this last week to be completely crushed by my mistakes. Everything in my humanity wants to go run in a cave and hide. My flesh did not want to come before you and apologize and to humble myself and to still try to preach a gospel that that I feel inadequate, ill-equipped to be preaching. But then I also recognize that God has told me time and time again, Jesse, that's the reason that I've chose you because I choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The reason that I'm qualified to be up here is because in many, many ways, I'm not qualified. Keller says this, he says, we only fully grasp the gospel when we understand as Paul did that we are the worst sinner we know. So God in his beauty has declared you're a big problem, but he has created a major, most beautiful, perfect solution. He loves us big time. And as verse 16 says, he has killed the hostility. There should be in the church no more hostility toward one another. No more prejudice towards one another's preferences. Just new creation. If you have placed your faith in Christ this morning, my friend, it doesn't matter what you've done to me, what sins you've committed. I see you as a child of God. And you are part of God's family. And if you're here and you've never been part of that, God wants you to be a part of his family. He wants to invite you in. And we are working on and we are being sanctified through as a church, growing to be more gospel-centered and, and for our behavior to pour out in more gracious measures that more frail, broken babies will be brought into the arms of Christ, washed by his holiness, brought into the family of God, and then given to Christ himself as his bride. That he would walk with them forever in closeness and intimacy with no walls between you and God and no walls between one another. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray and we sing one last song together? You tell us, Lord, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is all from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Thank you for reconciling us to yourself,
And may we be a people that reconciles to each other and that helps each other reconcile each other to you and one another. This will require great grace. It will require the gospel to be on the forefront of our minds. And it will demand of us to be a people of the spirit and not of flesh. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.